Good morning, and welcome to the online service of Christ the King Anglican Church, Toronto. In a few minutes, I will begin a sermon on Psalm 110. But before I do, I feel I need to take a moment to acknowledge how much we have all been shaken by the recent killing of George Floyd, an unarmed, handcuffed black man by police officers who degradingly pinned him on the road, knelt on his neck, and ignored his struggle just to be able to breathe. Much rightful anger and soul-searching has been stirred up by this clear evidence that systematic injustice pervades our society. I've prepared a short reflection on this, and with Keith's blessing, I'm going to share it, and then I will begin my sermon. There were no cell phone cameras in first century Judea when Roman soldiers crucified a convict named Yeshua. But if there had been, a camera might have captured these Roman, these Roman soldiers going about business as usual. Crucifixion was, after all, the execution of choice for humiliating those among an oppressed people who dared to raise their heads. And a cell phone camera might have recorded that convict's agonizing death although I don't know if the batteries would have lasted the three-hour duration of his crucifixion. And the video quality might not have been that great because apparently it was eerily dark for the middle of the day. The audio track would have caught what he said, which does not seem to have included, I can't breathe, but it could have because... Although blood loss from a severe scourging and dehydration were factors, death by crucifixion is primarily a long, slow death by asphyxiation. Hanging by arms pinned outward on the crossbeam, the victim needs to push himself up from his nailed feet in order to open his chest cavity for the next breath. Every breath is a contortion of pain in an otherwise immobilized body. And the video would most likely have ended when he breathed his last and hung his lifeless head. That would be it. For Yeshua's friends, his death was senseless. He had been crushed by the very political power they had hoped he would overthrow. In first century Judea, social media was a whole lot different than today, but they did have experience with protests. But in Yeshua's case, all the protests had been to get him crucified rather than to protest the injustice of his crucifixion. And so his friends did not take to the Twitter, Twitter sphere, 
they did the other thing we've all gotten a, a lot of experience with lately. They went into social isolation. Yeshua's death would be one more in a long line of unanswered injustices. Perhaps Yeshua's friends wanted to cry out for justice, but to whom could they cry? They had given up on justice. How about us? When we cry out for justice, to whom do we cry? And when we experience injustice, to whom do we entrust ourselves? And when we realize we are part of the problem of injustice, to whom do we turn for redemption and transformation? With whom does the buck stop? Who will set things right and when? And in the meantime, what are we to do? In first century Judea, Yeshua's friends had given up on justice. But strangely, while Yeshua himself was hanging there, his life slowly draining out of him, he had not given up on justice. Here is what would later be written about this moment of time. And uh, for those of you who would like, you can look it up with me. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I'm sure you recognize that I've been talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. Yeshua was his Hebrew name. The crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest injustice the world has ever known. Yet that's not how we remember it, is it? For two reasons. First, because he didn't stay dead. And second, because having risen from the dead, he explained to his gobsmacked friends that God had taken the greatest injustice the world had ever known and brought out of it the only hope for true justice the world will ever know. What happened when Jesus went to the cross was that he went in our place and entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. In doing this, 
he dealt with the root cause of all injustice, which is sin. Whether individual or corporate sin, occasional or systemic sin. It's sin that is under everything that has gone wrong and continues wrong in hearts and lives and relationships and communities and the world. This world is riddled with injustice because it is riddled with sin. But the God who judges justly has intervened. And because of Jesus' crucifixion, Sin can be forgiven. Our guilty consciences can be sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, the perfect sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the new covenant in Jesus' blood, we can receive new hearts that desire to keep God's commandments. And with new hearts, the transformation of lives and relationships and communities and the future is possible. As Christians, our hope for mercy and for justice is in the Lord. And so I encourage all of us to continue to seek him for how he would have us respond to the issues raised by the killing of George Floyd. Okay. Now I'm going to begin my sermon. And I'll begin with these words from the text that Masha read for us earlier this morning. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the last three weeks, we have commemorated Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity Sunday. And in two weeks' time, Keith will return us to our series in the book of Hebrews. But today and next Sunday, I will be preaching on two different Old Testament passages. These passages um, are, are ones that the book of Hebrews draws on. So think of these two sermons not as a detour from Hebrews, but as supporting our Hebrews series. Next week, I will be speaking from Genesis 22, but today our text from God's word is Psalm 110. 
Keith uh, led us in reciting Psalm 110 as our psalm today. And Masha read for us from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 110. In that Matthew passage, the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees were all asking Jesus trick questions, trying unsuccessfully to trap him in his words. And then Jesus turned the tables and asked them a question about the implications of Psalm 110 for the identity of the Messiah. If he's David's son, how come David calls him Lord? Jesus' adversaries were not able to answer a word, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Psalm 110, particularly uh, verse 1, is the most quoted and alluded to text from the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. The book of Hebrews is no exception. As we've seen over the, the months, the book of Hebrews draws on many Old Testament ta texts, perhaps uh, more than any other single book in the New Testament. But whereas the book of Hebrews quotes and alludes to many Old Testament texts, I claim its shape or outline is from Psalm 110. So please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It's not a very long psalm, only seven verses. The first thing to notice is the very first line that says, a psalm of David. That's King David, the man who reigned over a united Israel in the golden age of their history. The man to whom God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham, the promise of a people in their own land, living under the blessing of God, a blessing that would extend to all the families of the earth. But to David, God also disclosed that his blessing would be mediated through one of David's descendants. And that that uh, descendant um, would reign as a king forever over a kingdom of righteousness and peace. This promised descendant came later to be called the Messiah, the anointed one. He would be anointed by the Holy Spirit for kingship, just as David had been. Now to see that the outline of the book of Hebrews is from this psalm, Look first at verse 1 and then at verse 4. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Behind the word says in this verse is a special word very rarely used in the Old Testament prior to the time of the prophets. 
it refers to an oracle or utterance of God. So David records an oracle of God that he has heard God speak to someone that David calls my Lord. Someone that God invites to sit at his own right hand of power. Someone who is, in some fashion, co-equal with God. Now look at verse 4. Whereas verse 1 is an oracle of God, verse 4 is an oath of God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is about someone whom God declares in oracle and oath to be both king and priest of God's people. The book of Hebrews says this someone is Jesus, the Messiah. Right at the start, as the book of Hebrews extols the Son of God through whom God speaks, chapter 1, verse 3 says, in a clear allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus, born a son of David and now exalted to the very right hand of God as David's Lord. He is king. He is the anointed one of the messianic promises. But he is also priest, having made purification for sins once for all people and all time at the cross. For the writer of Hebrews, as well as all the other New Testament writers, since the oracle of Psalm 110 verse 1 was fulfilled when Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven, it is absolutely certain that the oath of Psalm 110 verse 4 is also in force. God has sworn to Jesus for our sakes and will not change his mind that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. At God's right hand, interceding for us by means of his finished work at the cross. This is the outline of the book of Hebrews. It begins with the ascended Jesus on the throne in heaven. It speaks of this throne of grace to which we can draw near with confidence to find help in time of need. And then it goes on through many chapters to expound the meaning and implications of the fact that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I could stop there because that Jesus is the priest king of Psalm 110 is what we need to know and it's what Keith has been carefully expounding for us week by week from Hebrews, the details of this wonderful and encouraging truth. 
But there is more to Psalm 110 than just verses 1 and 4. So let's take a look at the whole psalm and make some further comments about the figure of the priest king. So here we go. In verses 1 and 2, God gives the king power and authority to reign. Verse 1, or the beginning of verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand is the place of power. So this is like the Lord sharing his throne. We get the same picture in um, Revelation chapter 5 when God shares his throne with the Lamb who was slain. The beginning of verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. A scepter is the symbol of authority to reign. So this is like the Lord commissioning the king with the mandate to reign. However, the context of this reign is that there are enemies all around. But God and the king are partners for overthrowing these enemies. And the king is not only to stand up to or hold his ground against these enemies, but to prevail over them until they are defeated. The uh, song, or excuse me, verse two goes on to say, rule in the midst of your enemies. The word rule here does not just mean govern, it means prevail over. And verse one goes on to say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The phrase, make your enemies your footstool, evokes the kind of Old Testament war images that make us cringe. But in the New Testament, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, alludes to this verse uh, to picture the ultimate rightful submission of all creation to its creator for the very good purpose that God would be all in all. Moving on in this psalm, in contrast to resistant enemies over which the king must prevail, the king's people are willing volunteers who rally to him and follow his lead. Take a look at verse 3. It begins, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. On the day of your power could also be translated on the day that you lead your forces. This first part of verse 3 sounds very much like the first line of the song of Deborah and Barak from the book of Judges. After God had given the army of an oppressive Canaanite king into the hand of a troop of volunteers from just two of the tribes of Israel, Deborah and Barak sing. 
that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. The rest of uh, verse 3 has been translated in many different ways. There is something about holiness. Um, the willing army is either in holy garments or on a holy mountain or resplendent with God's holiness. It's not clear. But the concept of a royal priesthood and a holy nation comes to mind. First from Exodus chapter 19 and then from 1 Peter chapter 2. Also, the image of the 144,000 standing with Jesus on Mount Zion comes to mind from Revelation chapter 14. Then there is something about youthful vigor, either describing the people or describing their effect on the king or describing the king himself. In summary, the picture that emerges in verse 3 is of the king full of vitality leading forth a glorious and holy host of dedicated warriors, none of which had to be drafted. The theme of holiness is a good transition now to verse 4. God declares in an unchangeable oath that this king is also a priest forever in the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Keith talked about Melchizedek uh, extensively when uh, this enigmatic character came up in Hebrews. But by way of review, the sum total of what we know about Melchizedek is from four verses in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. His name translates king of righteousness. And Genesis 14 says he is the king of Salem. Salem is likely an abbreviated or prior name for Jerusalem from the time of Abraham. But Salem means peace. So as king of Salem, Melchizedek is literally king of peace. The text of Genesis 14 also says Melchizedek is priest of God most high. So we have Melchizedek presented as a priest king of righteousness and peace. Further, Melchizedek appears in the narrative without any genealogy or explanation of origins. And then after his interactions with Abraham, he disappears, never to be mentioned again. But between Melchizedek and Abraham, Melchizedek is clearly the superior. He pronounces a blessing on Abraham in the name of God Most High. And he receives from Abraham a tenth of the spoils from Abraham's victory in the battle he waged to rescue his nephew Lot. 
in all this. Uh, as the book of Hebrews carefully explains, Melchizedek re represents a priest king whose priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levites, both because Levi was a descendant of Abraham while Melchizedek was his superior, and because, unlike Levite priests, Melchizedek's days apparently have no beginning or end, and so his priesthood appears to endure forever. As, uh, as Keith said, Melchizedek did not necessarily live forever, but rather inspired scripture presents him as though his priesthood continues forever, so as to point ahead to the one who actually has the power of an indestructible life, who rose from the dead, and who is a priest forever. Moving on. In verses 5 and 6, the scene changes to the battlefield. But the army of willing warriors from verse 3 has faded from sight. It's just the Lord and the priest king as partners now in a worldwide conquest. Shattering opponents, executing judgment, filling up the place with the bodies of enemies. The phrase, the battle belongs to the Lord, comes to mind. Verses Verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It sounds like Armageddon, the final battle in Revelation chapter 19. But then there were also, or there was also no shortage of battles with high body counts in the days of the judges and in the days of David. When God listened to the cries of his people and his anger was kindled against their enemies and his. But in the New Testament, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, alludes to Psalm 110, but in the place of the heaped-up bodies of enemies, he has the body of Christ, the church. Because through the cross, Christ's enemies become his friends as we die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen to these verses in um, Ephesians. Uh, starting part way into chapter 1, verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Finally, verse 7 is a picture of probably the priest king, or it could be the Lord, refreshing himself with a drink and lifting up his head in victory. A victory either completed or in progress, as in stopping for a quick drink while continuing to pursue. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So that is Psalm 110. I'll conclude with a little historical footnote. David was a king, but not a priest. But as a king in Jerusalem, he was in the place where long before Melchizedek had been a king and a priest. And David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down an oracle and an oath of God about someone to come after him, someone who would come to be called the Messiah, who would be both a king and a priest of God's people. But it was to be a long wait for him. None of David's sons who reigned after him for some 400 years up until the Babylonian exile were the one. And after the Babylonian exile, Although the temple was rebuilt, there were no more kings in the line of David. The prophet Zechariah was among the exiles that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and God instructed him to act out a reaffirmation of David's prophecy from Psalm 110. Zechariah took an offering of gold and silver and made a crown out of it and set it temporarily on the head of the current high priest, whose name incidentally was Joshua or Yeshua. Then he removed it and placed it uh, as a memorial in the rebuilt temple. What was that about? A family of priests from the tribe of Levi, called the Hasmoneans, thought they knew. In the period of history between the Old and New Testaments, after a successful revolt against foreign rulers led by one of their own, called Judas Maccabeus, the man of Hanukkah fame, the Hasmonean Levitical priests thought they should be made kings. But this line of priest kings lasted only 100 years before they were so politically corrupt and divided that Rome came in and took over. The wait would be still longer for the priest king of Psalm 110. Finally, a son of David from the kingly tribe of Judah was born who was also the incarnate Son of God. His name was Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. 
which, like its twin name Joshua, means God saves. And he would offer himself in a perfect life and a sinless death for the sins of the whole whole world. In this once-for-all offering on a Roman cross, he atoned for sin and reversed its consequence, death. By his blood, our guilty consciences can be sprinkled clean. And we can receive new hearts, the desire to keep God's commandments for the sake of justice and mercy righteousness, and peace. So God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand where he is now, always interceding for all who look to him. Foreshadowed by Melchizedek, he is king and high priest forever. Amen.